You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 29th day of September 2014. Thank you all for tuning in once again to this edition of the podcast. And once again, this is an edition of Questions for Corbett, where you send in your questions and I answer them. Pretty straightforward. So as always, I like to roll up our sleeves and get straight into it. But before doing so, of course, the usual caveats. Number one being that, of course, I do try to read everything that comes in via the contact form on CorbettReport.com. But as always, I have to stress and apologize for the fact that I'm absolutely incapable of responding to everyone. In fact, even the ones that I want to respond to, I don't always have the time to do so, so I am now three months behind on my inbox. So if you do not receive a personal response from me, please don't fret about it. It really is just due to the volume of emails that I receive, but I do appreciate the info, tips, questions, and assorted other uh, bits and goodies that come in through the contact form there on CorbettReport.com, where of course you can submit your questions for this podcast series, and you can also take advantage of the, uh, the, the recording program that I have up there for you to record your voice through your computer's uh, microphone in order to get a audio question into this series, and of course audio is given preference, as is video. Once again, if you do have a video question for Corbett that you'd like to submit, uh, Put it up on YouTube or whatever video sharing site or just send it to me directly. At any rate, do let me know that it's out there so that I do know it exists and I'll be happy to include it in the uh, the next questions for Corbett. Also, of course, we accept uh, Twitter questions at Corbett Report or uh, basically any other way that you can think of to do it. And of course, the number one priority will be given to questions that are left on this post on CorbettReport.com by Corbett Report members. Once again, if you are a member of the Corbett Report, i.e. for as little as $1 a month, you can uh, sign up to become a member. You get not only the weekly Corbett Report subscriber newsletter, but you also get the access to log into the website and leave your comments and questions directly on the website. So priority will be given to questions that are left on the previous month's QFC episode post on the website. Having said all of that, let's actually get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, the reason that you and I are both here, which is for me to A, your cues. So let's get straight into it with the first question coming from Richard. I was recently reading the book The History of the Supreme Court of the United States by Gustavus Myers, and in it he very casually mentioned the fact that the U.S. Constitution was drafted under secrecy and behind closed doors. I must admit I had never heard that, that before and was a bit shocked. What is your take on the secrecy surrounding the U.S. Constitution's creation? All right, thank you for that, Richard. Um, You're exactly right. This is, in fact, absolutely 100% mainline history. There's nothing at all conspiratorial about this. It's absolutely admitted that the Constitution of the United States was drafted in secret. Uh, You can even get that from the National Constitution Center, constitutioncenter.org. Um, talking about the you know, fast facts about the Constitution, number three is the U.S. Constitution was prepared in secret behind locked doors that were guarded by sentries. So, yes, again, this is 100% mainline fact. And the reason for this is essentially because the uh, resolution from Continental Congress that gave the authority to convene a federal convention, as it was called, 
was from a resolution that said specifically, quote, that in the opinion of Congress, it is expedient that on the second Monday of May next, a convention of delegates, delegates who shall have been appointed by the several states, be held at Philadelphia for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. And so that, again, was the, the authority under which the, this convention was convening, and for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation, very quickly turned into, hey, why don't we create an entirely new government under a different constitution? And it really didn't take long before that happened. I believe it was May 25th, 1787, that they were actually able to uh, convene a quorum of at least seven states, and by May 30th, they had already decided to create a new go governmental system altogether. And we get this from the fact that these debates were held in secret at the time, but we now, of course, have the notes of some of the participants, including the notes of the secret debates of the Federal Convention of 1787, taken by the late Honorable Robert Yates, Chief Justice of the State of New York, and one of the delegates from that state to the said convention, which is available online at the Yale Law School website, and you can read from the very first entry, Wednesday, May 30th, 1787, that the third point that was resolved about this uh, by this convention was that a national government ought to be established consisting of a supreme judicial, legislative, and executive. So literally, within days of actually convening the uh, the the convention, they had already decided to well and truly exceed their bounds. So yes, again, this is mainline history. There's there's nothing uh, secretive about it. The 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 the, the U.S. Constitution was drafted. In secret, it was uh, done in kind of a tricky way. The proceedings of the uh, the convention itself and the votes that the convention took that in the debates were part of the open public record, but its committee proceedings were not. So that every morning at 10 a.m., uh, the uh, the 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 convention itself was presided over by George Washington, who then convened what was called the Committee of the Whole, which was, of course, everyone who was there, all of the delegates, were part of this Committee of the Whole. But this Committee of the Whole then became the uh, the sort of Trojan horse by which they were able to hold secret meetings and to, uh, to take votes, for example, that were off the record and were not recorded and um, public uh, uh, forum, quora. Uh, were not recorded, uh, roll call wasn't recorded, all of that sort of thing, so that they could convene this committee of the whole in order to basically secret in a constitution by the back door that would not appear in the public uh, debate records. And that's how it was done. And that's, I think, another reason why uh, the people who posit the United States Constitution as some sort of revered holy document that descended from the heavens might want to look into the actual process by which it was created, the actual debates that were taking place behind those closed doors, uh, why there were uh, people who were stridently against this, and, uh, and there were arguments against the ratification of the Constitution when they finally came out, emerged from behind closed doors after four months of deliberations and said, hey, we've got a Constitution for a completely new government, vote on it. And there were people who were outraged by this because, of course, this did completely exceed the authority that the convention was operating in. So there you go. I mean, there's there's it in a nutshell. And of course, there's much more to be said about the process of the creation of this document. But again, it is just a document. And I think the people who revere it as something holy and treasured probably don't maybe don't even know about the process by which it was created or um, basically sprung on the public. And it should give us pause for thought about 
where, again, this authority of these self-appointed delegates and, and political representatives uh, come come from and why they believe they have the right to set, well, hundreds of years of future history and consign people not yet born to the slave, uh, the debt chains uh, or this, yeah, the debt chains, but also the, the chains of, of being uh, bound to a document that they did not participate in the creation of, that they did not sign, that they are not party to in any way, but they're somehow bound by. Um, again, in that regard, of course, I'd direct you to uh, Lysander Spooner in the Constitution of No Authority for the philosophical debate about uh, what the Constitution really is. So we'll leave that aside for the moment, but yes, thank you for pointing that out, Richard. The uh, the U.S. Constitution was drafted in secret. All right, let's move on. We're going to uh, go to an audio uh, call, this time from someone who left a recording via the contact form on CorbettReport.com. Hi, James. I'm just wondering if you have any commentary on why the insurance companies did not challenge the claims against them for 9-11, for the losses of the buildings on 9-11. I'm hearing it being used as an argument for um, not challenging the official story of uh, the events of 9-11. Thanks for your input. Cheers. Thank you for the question, Rob. I do appreciate it. Although I must, I think, correct or at least slightly alter the premise of the question, because I don't believe that it's the fact that the insurance companies didn't challenge Silverstein whatsoever on 9-11. It's just that they didn't challenge him in a meaningful way, perhaps unsurprisingly. And in fact, there are a number of different court cases that have swirled around over the years and have been in, uh, in proceedings even up to this very year that bear on what happened on 9-11 and the types of responses that were um, made to it legally. So, for example, of course, there was Silverstein's ongoing uh, insurance drama, and that ultimately settled in 2007, I believe, with a $4 billion settlement in favor of Silverstein. So he ended up getting $4 billion um, from the insurance companies. He wanted, uh, uh, I believe he was going for eight at the time that it was ultimately settled on for four, i.e. counting each uh, strike on each World Trade Center as a separate act and thus doubling his uh, the amount of money that he could claim. But at any rate, that ultimately resolved down to $4 billion. He only got $4 billion out of the insurance companies. But that wasn't the end of the saga. In fact, then he went on to sue the airlines for their gross negligence, or, or whatever the exact legal term that he used, in allowing these hijackings to take place, which is an interesting way of approaching it, because, of course, that does start to raise some of the issues that impinge directly on what happened on 9-11, and the fact that we're expected to believe that these four hijackings took place on uh, the same morning uh, via people who had been screened and even set aside for special screening on that morning because of their uh, suspicion that they were uh, carrying objects that they shouldn't have been, etc., but were all let on board and all proceeded to do the hijackings according to the official story. Well, so Silverstein says, well, that's an example of gross negligence on the part of these airlines and the fact that they weren't able to secure their aircraft. Therefore, they were partly responsible for what happened in my building, so I should sue them. So it ultimately ended up in a $1.2 billion lawsuit that was eventually, as of mid-2013, 
thrown out uh, of court. And uh, we can get this, for example, from Cranes New York, which had a uh, Bloomberg article talking about the fact that these were thrown out by Judge Elvin Hellerstein, U.S. District Judge Elvin Hellerstein, an interesting figure who's been involved in an awful lot of very interesting decisions over the years, probably someone that uh, bears some further scrutiny. But he dismissed the suit um, by Silverstein against... Uh, 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 this one actually talking about uh, the dismissal of the suit against uh, QBE insurance and industrial risk insurers, but uh, there was also a, a suit against United Continental Holdings, Inc. and AMR Corp's American Airlines, and uh, those were thrown out because the ultimately it was ruled that the damages uh, were recouped by his $4 billion settlement with the insurance company, so he couldn't sue the airlines for further damages. Um, there was an interesting other... Uh, a piece of this puzzle where uh, Silverstein himself was cleared of blame for the fall of World Trade Center Building 7 back in December of last year. And we'll take this from therealdeal.com. Quote, Silverstein properties cannot be held responsible for the collapse of a third World Trade Center tower that tumbled a few hours after the Twin Towers were struck in the 9-11 ter terror attacks, a federal appeals court has ruled. A group of plaintiffs led by Con Edison and several insurance companies brought a suit against Larry Silverstein's company, blaming alleged structural deficiencies for the fall of World Trade Center 7. As the North Power Tower plunged, debris fell into neighboring number 7 and touched off a fire that firefighters were unable to contain, the court said. It would be simply incompatible with common sense and experience to hold that defendants were required to design and construct a building that would survive the events of September 11th, 2001, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second uh, Circuit in Manhattan said. The decision reaffirmed Manhattan federal judge Joseph Hellerstein, previous uh, uh, ruling along similar lines. So... In this case, Silverstein Properties ultimately ended up escaping the blame for what happened to World Trade Center 7 uh, because well, who could have foreseen that kind of structural damage? And, of course, this gets into the heart of what NIST says actually brought down the building and the fact that I guess everyone who works in a uh, steel-framed uh, skyscraper should now be deathly afraid of office fires, which apparently can bring down the entire structure uh, directly down, uh, basically into its own footprint at freefall gravitational acceleration for the first one-third of the descent. That's pretty scary stuff. Um, better make sure you don't set on a fire in an office building, although it's never happened before never happened since in a similar uh, uh, office tower. At any rate, uh, those are some of the court cases, but, uh, and, and again, um, there was another one that uh, ultimately ended up concluding in May of this year, Airlines exempt from September 11th environmental claim. Uh, American Airlines and United Airlines and the World Trade Center leaseholder do not have to pay a property developer environmental cleanup cost from the September 11th, 2001 hijacked plane attacks. A U.S. appeals court ruled on Friday. Uh, real estate developer Cedar and Washington Associates sued in 2008 to recoup costs associated with cleaning up asbestos, fiberglass, and other particles during the renovation of a 12-story apartment building near the site in Lower Manhattan where the World Trade Center's Twin Towers were destroyed. So again, an interesting little piece of this puzzle where a basically a developer is trying to sue in order to defray the costs of the asbestos and fiberglass cleanup, which many people have pointed to as one of the potential reasons that the uh, Twin Towers were brought down that day in order to avoid the, the, re, the recladding of the entire building, uh, the replacement of the asbestos that was going to need to happen at some point 
Uh, anyways, probably to the tune of billions of dollars, well, they just blew up the buildings, collected the insurance money, and, uh, and basically were able to claim an act of war in order to defray the costs that were associated with that cleanup. Um, absolutely incredible. Uh, and that's the defense they used, by the way. They said it was an act of war. So uh, under a law enacted in 1980 to deal with environmental and health and risk caused by industrial pollution, they were able to defray their liability for that. Very interesting, the legal maneuvers that have gone on. Of course, in all of these legal maneuvers, no one has ever brought up something like, oh, but, but Silverstein said pull it, or, or anything of that sort. Uh, absolutely nothing that would imply that there was anything beyond these behind these attacks beyond the 19 men with box cutters. And of course, we would never see that from any of the main players uh, here at the table in any of these courtrooms, even if, it, even if billions of dollars are on the line, because ultimately these are billions of dollars that are being traded hands, basically, between uh, people who are on the inside, and uh, the ultimate costs of this are defrayed off to the reinsurers who basically saddled on at the last minute to do a deal that they did not understand, and it's ultimately their customers that end up paying for that in uh, the form of higher uh, premiums for their own payments. So, um, this is the way it's done. This is business, and we should not expect otherwise. I do seem to recall at the time of the airlines lawsuit that there were people who were speculating that the airlines were going to bring forward some kind of defense, uh, basically bringing some sort of 9-11 truth to the, the courts, or someone was trying to lobby the airlines in order to accept uh, the uh, sort of a, a friend of the court type petition talking about some of these issues. I seem to recall that. I can't find it online right now, but uh, at any rate, of course, it can to nothing and was never used. So I don't think we should expect anything different. I don't think we're going to find any sort of justice through this through this type of, uh, of court case in, in this uh, head-on way. And certainly it hasn't occurred to this point. So thank you again for that question, Rob. I do appreciate it. Let's move on to the next question. This one of a much more philosophical uh, bent. And uh, this one comes from David who writes, my question to you is if you have considered that the individual collective dichotomy might be a false dichotomy. I'm referring here, here to notions of commons and layerings of authority in a wide variety of structures, as opposed to a completely atomistic individualism, where I personally would, not, would, would place voluntarism, libertarianism on the one hand, and a collective statism on the other hand. A concrete example, states often use the idea of an individual, in this case children's rights, to further the goal of destroying family units by substituting the state as the guarantor of those rights. Is it not possible that the family unit is a common entity with its own place in society, which is different from that of persons and with its own rights, obligations, and duties over and above that of the individual person, but also in contradistinction to the state of uh, or other entities? Okay, a very detailed philosophical question here, and I... Ultimately, to answer the first part of the question, yes, I do believe that the individual collective distinction is something of a false dichotomy, at least the way that it's used in these types of debates to try to make, I think, simplistic straw man arguments about what voluntarism is, or on the other hand, I suppose, about what uh, collective socialism is. I don't think that it is I, I don't think anyone is arguing for complete atomistic individualism or complete collectivism. I think everything is an admixture of the two. And to that extent, I don't think it's a necessarily useful distinction. I suppose you could put some sort of spectrum out there and, and say what, which side of the spectrum you'd like to fall on. But for myself personally, I mean, for example, I of course believe in individual rights, but uh, it does, that does not mean that I believe that people should 
basically be the Unabomber living in the wilderness. I mean, they can if they want to be, and they should be allowed to be if they want to be, uh, free and exempt from any obligations by any uh, people in funny hats wearing funny badges who claim to be the authority that represents a given geographical area. But I haven't chosen to become a Unabomber, and uh, I'm assuming no one who's listening to this podcast has similarly chosen. We've all chosen to a certain extent to live within communities and as part of communities, and that brings with it, I think, certain... I think obligations is too strong a word, but of course, I mean, anyone who wants to live in a community but feels in no way whatsoever any uh, any wish to participate and and to involve themselves with that community and build other people up in that community up probably is just devoid of uh, basic human feeling and is a psychopath who deserves to be shunned from that community. But at any rate, uh, I don't think obligation is necessarily the right, right way to look at it, because as you say, uh, David, I agree, the state likes to set itself up as the guarantor of rights and the enforcer of obligations, which is a way, of course, of basically sneaking things in the back door that uh, none of us want. Ultimately, I think this comes down to individuals. Um, when you bring in the family, and uh, I, again, I think that the there are obligations that come with parenthood, but again, those are chosen obligations by people choosing to become parents, whether they consciously choose it or not. They engage in the acts that make them parents, and uh, that obligation to their children can be can be deferred or offset or, or put onto someone else, for example, by giving a child up for adoption if you're incapable of taking care of it yourself. But at any rate, I think there are certain obligations that parents have to children, but who becomes the enforcer of those obligations? I mean, does the state have the right to step in and enforce what happens in the family unit? Uh, ultimately, I, I don't think so, because I don't believe that the state should exist, but it does raise the question of to what extent do communities have an obligation towards uh, the, the sort of protection of, of children uh, that are being that are being abused, um, because child abuse really does happen, and things of that nature. It is a, a, a sticky situation, I agree, but it isn't one that I think can be resolved by simply saying 100% atomistic individualism, everyone is a Unabomber living in their own square of the woods, versus everyone is a collective, you know, in, in slavery to the collective and must do whatever the collective demands. I, I think that's a obviously oversimplistic way of, of looking at it. So it does require a bit of philosophical nuance, which I know is not popular and uh, requires a bit of philosophical rigor, which, to be fair, we haven't really explored in that degree of detail here on the program. So that is absolutely something to explore in a future episode in a greater degree of detail with some of the, uh, hopefully some of the leading thinkers on these subjects. So let's add that to the list of things that we will cover in a future episode of the Corbett Report podcast. And if there is any intrepid listener out there who wants to make a list of the things that we have said we should cover in a future episode. It's got to be a pretty interesting list by this point, although probably dozens of pages long. So we should actually be keep t uh, taking notes of this, and uh, someone should send me that list so I can actually uh, follow up on all of these different threads, because they are all worthy of, uh, of looking into. So thank you again for that, David. All right, let's uh, go to Twitter for a, a tweet question that we got in from at Regento. Regento? I'm not sure how that wants to be pronounced, but at any rate, uh, this Twitter user asks, an ABC journalist said to me, there is no censorship in the mainstream media. How would you reply to that? <laughs> well, first of all, I would reply with a hearty, ha, oh my god, that's funny. Um, that actually reminds me of uh, this guy. Who can forget this guy? This is nonsense. 
Now retired, Dewey Claridge was the CIA's man in charge of Central America in the early 80s. He insists the agency had nothing to do with any drug trafficking or with any cover-up. Don't give me the don't give me the conspiracy bullshit. Come on, you're you're a more intelligent man than that. Come on, come on. I mean, come on. This this has never been a conspiracy in this country. There has never been a conspiracy in this country. Oh, I never get tired of that one. Um, yes, uh, ridiculous is uh, one way of responding to a claim like that. Um, but let's let's give the, that kind of claim the uh the at least the the honor of being treated seriously for a moment so that we can dissect it and i think that there are obviously a number of different ways through which censorship functions uh in any field but of course in the mainstream media as well and that censorship is not always overt and it does not always come for, down from on high there is a great degree i think by far the majority of quote-unquote censorship that takes place in the mainstream media is self-censorship that there are certain stories that come along across uh, reporters desks that they don't look into because they basically they understand that they are not going to be they're either not going to be allowed to work on that story or if they do uh, suggest it that they're going to be uh, basically classified as crazy by their assigning editors so they don't go into those certain areas that's the structure by which the mainstream media generally functions that there is a, a huge degree to which self-censorship takes place that doesn't look like censorship at all because it's a choice that people make not to look into certain areas. So that's, I think, the, the primary function of censorship in the media. But of course, um, there's also the question of simply well, those, those areas, those questions that just don't get looked at or looked into because they are not assigned by the editors themselves. I mean, that's Again, a huge part of the way that this takes place. There are the uh, the people that you don't go to for a quote on any given subject uh, becomes the missing voice in a conversation that could provide another angle. So that uh, the basically the editors of any given piece get to assign the uh, what what ultimately ends up being the two sides of whatever given debate they they deem uh, fit to to put into print or put onto television for the purposes of informing their viewers or listeners or readers, and uh, they get to decide the boundaries of those debate by simply deciding who gets quoted and who doesn't, who gets taken seriously and who doesn't, who gets who is worthy of speaking to on any given subject and who isn't. And simply by doing that, again, you can frame the, the boundaries of the discourse so that there doesn't necessarily have to be censorship per se, it's just a question of, you know, what sources do you go to? Who do you talk to? What do they talk about um, is one way of controlling the debate. And, of course, then there are the issues of actual censorship that takes place. And we've seen that a number of times. One of the ones that I think is fairly commonly known is uh, to do with the bovine growth hormone in milk story that was being worked on by some Fox reporters. And that, uh, that for a new series that Fox was going to unveil about hard-hitting investigative reports, and this was the first episode in that series, and ultimately word came down from on high on corporate uh, side of things that, no, you're not going to look into that. And basically that was the end of the contract of these reporters who were going to be the hard-hitting investigative reporters. There's a, there's a video online that I'll throw in the show notes about that that um, has, gone, has done a lot of rounds in the past several years. So that's one example. Um, another example of 
of course, I mean, even looking at something pretty mainstream like uh, The Insider starring uh, Al Pacino and uh, Russell Cameron or Russell Crowe, or <laughs> this is the extent of my knowledge of Hollyweird, but uh, 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 talking about the, uh, the, the attempt to blow the whistle on the tobacco companies and ultimately how 60 Minutes backed away from it and Lowell Bergman, the, uh, the upstanding journalist behind that, ultimately you know, had to resign from 60 Minutes because he, he was so disgusted by the way that CBS corporate stepped in to try to scuttle their, their report, blah, blah, blah. And of course, we know from Richard Grove about what Lowell Bergman is really like and what he will really look into and what he won't. So there's more to that story, obviously. But any rate, at any rate, uh, The Insider is another example of that you could point to for a very mainstream rebuttal to that idea that there's no censorship. But interestingly enough, we have another example of uh, explicit censorship taking place um, from a uh, some reporters who were told by their corporate masters not to look into a certain area that is very interesting to look into. And we will um, touch on that in the very next question. So let's get to the next question with a thank you once again to at Regento for that question uh, via Twitter. But the next question via the contact form from Anonymous, who, who writes, Hey, what's your take on this big boy? Puppet of Rothschild or some sort of Illuminati-sized outfit? Or is it connected to the Fed? I mean, when a company processes 1.7 quadrillion in a year, you have to assume they have hundreds of trillions at their disposal. That kind of makes them rulers of the world in many ways, whoever owns that. Does this 1.7 quadrillion even exist? All right, thank you very much for that, Anonymous. Uh, for those who have no idea what we're talking about, Excuse me. We're talking about the depository, de, sorry, depository trust and clearing corporation, which is a U.S. post-trade financial services company providing clearing and settlement services to the financial markets. And yes, it does deal in over a quadrillion dollars of transactions every year. But it should be noted that the settlement and clearing that it does is, of course, on treasuries and securities and bonds and ETFs and other financial instruments that are trading hands back and forth multiple times a year. So it isn't that there is $1.7 quadrillion worth of these instruments out there. It's just that they're trading back and forth. And every time they trade, the person who is basically clearing that transaction and settling what belongs where is this DTCC. So this is a very interesting organization that most people probably have never heard of, but in fact does an incredible amount of business every year. So what is it? Who owns it? Where does it get its authority from? What does it do, uh, physically speaking? These are all very important questions, and rather than reinventing the wheel and having me go through all of this information, why don't I point you to a couple of sources where you can get some of this information, including uh, our friend Sean at sgtreport.com, who talked about the DTCC in an interview uh, with uh, with Rob Kirby a while back in the context of a very interesting story around the DTCC that took place during Hurricane Sandy, where their one of their holding facilities was flooded in the basement by the, the, the hurricane. And as a result, a fire broke out that supposedly damaged uh, or, or potentially threatened at any rate 36 trillion dollars worth of securities that were being held at that facility, physical securities. A very interesting story that uh, Sean at SGT Report did some reporting on. So let's just listen to a little bit of this conversation with Rob Kirby in the context of that story where Rob des describes the DTCC and who it is and what it does. 
The D, this is right on their website. The DT, and this is stuff I knew anyway, but the DTCC is owned by its principal users and operates on an at-cost basis, which means we look to return profits we make to our customers, driven in part by economies of scale. Our transaction fees are among the lowest in the world. So they are, they are owned by the banks. The DTCC is not of government. It is of the banks. It is called an SRO, a self-regulatory organization, self-regulated. So this is, this, is, this is an organization that clears all the equities, all the securities, and, the, and, and, it's, and it's owned and staffed by the institutions that pay hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in fines every year and, 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 uh, doesn't, and, but never says uh, that they did anything wrong. That's who the DTCC is. And the DTCC, if you want to, if you want to know who the senior management, this is, they're, all, they're all on the payrolls of banks, okay, because they're all listed as being employed by banks. And, here, and here's where they're from, okay? This is the list of them. They're from Citibank, B of A, Merrill, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, the uh, NASDAQ, UBS, Deutsche, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, PIMCO, Wells Fargo, the New York Stock Exchange, Deutsche Bank, Bank of New York Mellon, Citi. Uh, one guy on their on their management committee is a former uh, Fed president from uh, Minneapolis, I think. Um, Goldman Sachs and uh, Morgan Mick. So there you go. That's that's their management roster. Okay, this is like putting pedophiles in in charge of a of a daycare. Well, have you heard this latest thing? Get this. It turns out that an old CFTC friend, Bix Weir, is reporting on this. Commissioner Michael V. Dunn, the very worst excuse for a government regulator in history, just landed himself a nice cushy job after leaving the CFTC. Guess where? He's being put in charge of storing the records for the DTCC. What, you mean all the wet ones? Okay, it's hard to pull away from a conversation like that and somewhat arbitrary where we decide to do so, but I'll leave it there on the understanding that you guys will follow the link in the show notes to that very interesting conversation in its entirety, because, again, it is an interesting conversation that's taking place between two people who are not pulling their punches about this DTCC and what it really does. But uh, but let's connect this into the previous question about the ABC journalist who said that uh, there is no such thing as uh, censorship in the mainstream media because, again, this is another example of specific censorship that we can point to. There is a researcher by the name of Bix Weir at RoadToRuda.com who has done some work on the DTCC and talking about the DTCC conspiracy and who's uh, behind it and this this entity which clears and settles and uh, nominally controls all these trillions upon trillions of dollars in securities and he was actually interviewed f about that subject for a History Channel documentary that, surprisingly enough, was yanked at the last minute. Right, and it's interesting you brought up the, D the DTCC because I believe recently you were scheduled to be on an episode. Um, is it the History Channel that was, was doing <laughs> yeah. that episode? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was an episode on... Secret un the Secret Underground of America, uh, and it's a show called America's Book of Secrets. And the fact and that they were willing to even cover this topic blew my mind. Oh, I, I was amazed. 
you know, and they and they brought me down to L.A. and I spent you know half a day in there with the the producer and the the film guys and you know had them blown away. They're running to their bank right after the the uh, interview. And then and a really interesting thing happened. Literally two days before it it was supposed to air, I called the producer and he had been fired. And then I called another guy down there and I said, nope, they're gonna pull it and they're not talking about it and they're not saying why. Hmm. And yeah, you know, I was I was. <laughs> I was pissed that I spent the time to do it, but it was also kind of an eye-awakening in, in that the mainstream media will just go so far when they want to talk about conspiracies. They'll never talk about the real conspiracies. They'll talk about the ones you know the whole world's already talking about, like uh, you know all the the hidden uh, you know secrets at the Fed and things like that. If it's in if it's in the mainstream media, they'll talk about it. If it's not yet, if it hasn't been shown to the world yet, like all the fraudulent certificates at the DTCC, then they're not going to show it. And and I should have known before, but and I was warned. Cliff High had warned me, "Hey, look out for those guys. <laughs> Don't trust them." I said, "Well, you know, what can it hurt?" And, well, I lost I lost a day and a half doing it. Right. Well, and I would like to give a little kudos to the producers who, at least, they were trying to give it a shot. I mean, they oh, yeah. found it interesting. Um, however, you know, at the end of the day, it's the owner of this major media conglomerate <laughs> that gets to veto exactly. something something so powerful as that. Um, yeah, I just hope I hope I wasn't the I wasn't the guy who got the the, the producer fired, but who knows these days. So there you go. There's obviously a lot more to look into with the DTCC and the specifics of how it functions and what it actually does to clear, for example, the high frequency trades that go on, uh, you know, millions of operations per second and all of the craziness that goes on in that world. But perhaps that's for a more in-depth explanation at a later date. So we'll add that to the list. I, I really love to think of the idea of someone actually keeping a list of all of these subjects because I really would like to see that list. All right, um, let's move on to the next question. This one, a, a question from the e, uh, contact form via Joe, who writes, the U.S. was reported to have heisted Ukrainian gold at the beginning of this conflict. Is that factual? And why has this not been brought up as a point of contention by the Russians or anyone else? All right. Yeah. Good question, Joe. Very good question. And so let's, as always, let's go and document this and see where this comes from and what's uh, become of this story. The original story was from March of this year, where it was reported by the Iskra News Service, which is a Russian language, pro-Russian news service in Ukraine. Uh, that reported on this story, and I will throw a link into the original story if you can read Russian, but if you cannot, don't worry. There's also a translation that's been provided by Gada by way of global research. And according to Iskra News, quote, at 2 a.m. this morning, March 7th of this year, an unmarked transport plane was on the runway at Borisbal Airport east of Kiev. According to airport staff, before the plane came to the airport, four trucks and two Volkswagen minibuses arrived all the truck license plates missing. 15 people in black uniforms, masks, and body armor stepped out, some armed with machine guns. They loaded the plane with more than 40 heavy boxes. After that, a mysterious man arrived and entered the plane. All loading was done in a hurry. The plane took off on an emergency basis. Those who saw this mysterious special operation immediately notified the airport officials who told the callers not to meddle in other people's affairs. Later, a returned call from a senior official of the former Ministry of Revenue reported that tonight, on the orders of one of the new leaders of Ukraine, the United States had taken custody 
of all the gold reserves in Ukraine. So this is the story from which all of this is sourcing. And the, as far as I've seen, the, the one person or entity that has done the most in following up on this and doing the yeoman's work of trying to get to the bottom of this was Chris Powell, the secretary slash treasurer of the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, a.k.a. GATA, uh, at gata.org, G-A-T-A.org, who actually bothered to phone up the New York Fed and get a spokesperson on the line to ask about this and whether it's true. And according to that follow-up report, a spokesman for the New York Fed said simply, any inquiry regarding gold accounts should be directed to the account holder. You may want to contact the National Bank of Ukraine to discuss this report. And as I understand it, similar follow-ups um, through other contacts and entities have resulted in similar runaround with no one giving a straight answer. So at any rate, it hasn't been confirmed, but it has been reported that the gold was confiscated and to what extent how much gold was confiscated, whether it was the entire Ukrainian gold reserve or what have you, as far as I'm aware, that has never been fundamentally ascertained. But there was an interesting follow-up from, of all places, the Wall Street Journal, which uh, I believe at the end of March 2014, so at the end of the month that this heist originally took place, or at least reportedly took place, the uh, the Wall Street Journal reported on some dispute over Scythian gold. Um, and I'll just read from this report. The Scythians were nomads who inhabited much of modern-day Russia and Ukraine from about 600 BC to 300 AD. They fought off their enemies from horseback with bows and arrows and interred their nobility in elaborate tombs where they buried horses, gold, and other treasured items alongside the dead. Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, they... they presented the Scythians as a scavenge, uh, savage eastern streak lingering in Russia's blood, ready to pillage Europe, blah, blah, blah. Uh, such ideas of Russia's special Eurasian destiny opposed to Western Europe have undergone a revival under President Putin, blah, 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 Cold War, blah, blah, blah. The controversy over the Amsterdam exhibit, i.e. an Amsterdam exhibit of some of the Scythian gold treasures, uh, isn't the first time Scythian gold has emerged as a flare-up in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Russian media outlets recently accused Ukraine Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk of smuggling Scythian gold treasures from Ukraine's National Gold Reserve to the U.S. as a guarantee for Western loans ahead of a March meeting with U.S. President Barack Obama in Washington. Ukrainian authorities called the claim a fantasy of Russian spin doctors. So an interesting little bit of follow-up from the Wall Street Journal that at least bothered to, to report on the claims that that gold was being used to secure the loans that ultimately were promised, uh, I believe, to the tune of $1 billion by the U.S. and, of course, billions more from the IMF and other sources. So uh, the, as a way of securing those loans, the gold was physically seized. That's where I believe this stands today, that we don't have any 100% confirmation of this, although I imagine that there must be some sort of record um, via the, the actual uh, Ukrainian uh, National Bank must have some sort of record. But then again, it's not like they're actually giving this gold away, so they would still claim to have it in their possession, just not physically in their possession. It's probably being held in New York or the New York Fed or what have you. At any rate, as far as I know, that's where the issue stands. I haven't seen any follow-up more recent than that. If anyone does know of it, please leave a comment and uh, let us know so that we can continue to follow up that story. It does seem like an interesting one. And again, as some commentators have noted, it's interesting that apparently the Germans can't secure any of their gold from the New York Fed, or at least only a few uh, a, a few ounces out of the thousands um, that, that are held by the Fed. 
uh, in all of the months and months that they've been trying and uh, the years that it will apparently take to continue to get even a fraction of their gold from the New York Fed. Uh, and yet they can get a plane together and get tons of gold shipped out overnight when, when they need to, or at least reportedly so. So we'll leave that there with a, something of a question mark. It is still of an, op an open-ended story. So if anyone knows of any more recent updates, uh, send them along and we'll pass it along. Uh, let's move on to the next question from Phil. I would like your advice on setting up a Bitcoin wallet slash account. I am not real smart when it comes to computers. I want privacy with my account and ease of use. Can you help? Thank you. Uh, well, yes, Phil, I can help in a general way. I am not going to, surprisingly, I think everyone would know this by, about me by now, I'm not going to recommend a specific wallet. That's going to be up to you to choose. But I will direct you to Bitcoin.org, the general page on securing your wallet, where they have just some general pieces of advice about backing up your wallet, encrypting your backups, using many secure locations, uh, using a strong password, um, not forgetting your password, using offline wallets or cold storage for long-term savings of Bitcoins, i.e. Uh, wallets that are not connected to the internet or online so that people cannot break into them, um, keeping software up to date, using multi-signatures to protect against theft, etc. All of the best practices that you would want to use with the wallet. But having said all of that, and I think that is all important, and you really do need to do a bit of due diligence on this, but I don't want to scare anyone off setting up a wallet or making it into some big insurmountable choice that you're going to have to spend months researching. I think that the first thing to do, like anything else, why not just play a little bit before you go all in? I'm assuming you're not going to be putting hundreds of Bitcoins in this wallet all at once. You're probably going to want to start off with a small amount. So assuming you have less than, say, one Bitcoin that you want to just play around with and get to know a, a wallet and how it functions and whether it's right for you, why not just take a little bit, half a Bitcoin or whatever it is, put it in a wallet, use that wallet, however you think you're going to use it by doing whatever online transactions or whatever you want to do, and see how it works for you and uh, whether the, uh, the, the backups and the encryption and the passwords and everything is something that you can deal with. Um, so I think that's probably the best way to do. Play a little bit and uh, get to know something before you build it up. And then the second piece of advice I would have is why put all your eggs in one basket? Why put all your Bitcoins in one wallet? You can have multiple wallets, and I would suggest you do so. Different services, some online, some offline if you want to keep uh, Bitcoin for longer term storage. Um, and again, there's lots of resources online for helping you to, to, to get involved in, in starting that. But as I say, just start with a little bit and just play around with it until you're at least comfortable with it. And uh, my other, other piece of advice, do not use a, uh, a, um, a, an exchange as a place for storing or parking Bitcoin. That is exactly what got the Mt. Gox people in trouble. People who had their Bitcoin basically parked at Mt. Gox as a convenient way of sort of storing it. Of course, what what does that even mean? It means that it, you are only as secure as that exchange and exchanges come and go and there are scandals. So do not leave your Bitcoin on an exchange. Always clear out your, your uh, transactions and get that Bitcoin back to, into your own wallet that you can secure yourself. That is the number one piece of advice, I think, in this post-Mount Gox world for people who are looking to get into the Bitcoin world. And uh, again, I mean, let's not make it into some big scary thing that you have to be scared of. Just start start out small and build up from there. And on the personal note, I can say I've personally used Multibit and Bitcoin.info, and both of those wallets have worked well for me, but your mileage may vary. It depends what you like, depends on your computer abilities and all of that. So again, just start playing with it and find what works for you. 
Okay, let's move on. Uh, we have another audio question. This one in from Benjamin. Yes, hello. I was just uh, sending a message to maybe suggest that you could do a series of short videos regarding major issues uh, such as a shorter version of the In the Fed, uh, a shorter 9-11 Truth video uh, with links, of course, to you know, de reputable data, uh, you know, water fluoridation, uh, globalization, all these major issues uh, that I could show to people without making them sit through these long videos, which are very informative and nice, but not for everybody. Um, something like that or anywhere along those lines would be uh, very helpful in getting more people on board with uh, fixing things that are wrong. All right. Thanks for your support. Thank you for the question, Benjamin. I do appreciate you taking the time to uh, to leave that question. And uh, let me say that, yes, those types of shorter videos do exist. Um, so I'm not sure how much you're acquainted with the website or my back catalog of videos, but I do have an awful lot of videos. I'm assuming by long videos, you're talking about the big one-hour podcasts or like this Questions for Corbett. There are obviously uh, a time commitment. Um, but if you're talking about videos in the 10-minute range, I have literally hundreds of them that I've created over the years on all sorts of different subjects. So since this is a learning opportunity for all of us, and it's always there's always new people coming on board who might not know about the website, let's use this as an opportunity to take a look at the website and how you can find videos like this on these various subjects. So let's hop on the desktop. Okay, for those of you watching the video version of this podcast, we are here on the desktop at CorbettReport.com. So hopefully this will look familiar for those of you out there who have bothered to visit the Corbett Report. I hope you all have by this point. But at any rate, this is what the uh, front page looks like with the latest article, latest video, and the most recent audio. And of course, to access the audio uh, backlogs, you go up to the, the bar here, audio, podcasts, interviews, film, literature, New World Order, Questions Corbett, uh, well, Well-Read Anarchist, and radio pro programs. There's the videos, the articles, and the various other things that you can do up here. But we're going to concentrate over here on the search bar where, for example, if you're looking for a, a short video on the fluoride subject, just go to the search bar and type in fluoride, and you will be able to pull up all of the various interviews and podcasts and articles that we've done on fluoride in the past. But for example, you just scroll down, for example, to the third uh, one right here. And here's a 10-minute video on the fluoride fight, the forced drugging of society. Here's, of course, the transcript with all the hyperlinks to all the various uh, articles and things that are cited in that uh, video. Here's the video itself. If you're looking for the YouTube version, it is back on the search results page. Here's the YouTube version. Or you can always just type that, uh, that exact uh, title into YouTube and you'll be able to find the YouTube version. So uh, that's one good way of finding some things on a particular subject, for example, fluoride or for example, Monsanto. Just type in Monsanto and you'll find all sorts of various things, including the very first one that pops up is a good 
10 minute video on the subject genetic fallacy how monsanto silences scientific dissent ag uh, sorry a boiling frogs post eye opener report that i did late last year again the transcript all of the sources uh, the video itself uh, you can download the video to your hard drive or of course you can go back on the search page and here's the youtube version or again you can just type that uh, that title into youtube in order to find the youtube version so again basically any major subject just type in the search word into the search bar and you should be able to find something on that subject or if you don't know what to search for there are the search tags here of some of the most popular tags on the website so for example if you're looking for something on the subject of Fukushima just type just click on the Fukushima one and you'll get all the various articles and videos and interviews that mention Fukushima on one handy list and of course you can use the next page function to keep scrolling through that list back into the archives so again that's the easiest way to find it and again if you're interested in a particular subject like fluoride uh, it really is quicker just to type it into the search bar than it is to contact me about that so uh, i hope that helps and for anyone who hasn't yet used the search bar on corporatereport.com it is a handy dandy tool i suggest you do so All right, thanks again for the question, Benjamin. And we are running out of time here, so let's uh, squeeze in a few more, more before we call it a day. Let's move on to a question from Stephen, who writes, Your analysis on global warming is interesting, and I would love to be convinced that this worrying topic is not such an impending disaster. I would be very interested to hear your opinion on the below. And then he includes a link to an ABC Science article by... Dr. Carl, um, called Global Warming Pause Explained, which begins by saying, in general, scientists are a pretty mild and inoffensive bunch, but over the last decade, one specific group of scientists has come in for a lot of criticism. So let's dive into the topic of the pause in global warming. In the USA, the Wall Street Journal wrote, temperatures have been flat for 15 years. Nobody can properly explain it. Another newspaper from the same stable, the UK Daily Mail, wrote global warming pause may last 20 more years and Arctic sea ice has already started to recover. Both of these statements are very reassuring, but unfortunately very, very wrong. With regard to this pause, there are two major claims made by those who deny the science of climate change. The first one is that the climate change, the climate, excuse me, the first one is that the climate is actually cooling, not warming. That is incorrect. The second claim is that after some previous warming, the global climate is now constant and neither warming nor cooling. In other words, that the climate is in a kind of holding pattern or hiatus. This is also incorrect. So let's look at the claim that the surface temperatures have not increased since 1998. But first, why the year 1998? Why not 1997 or 1999? Etc. Etc. I'll let you go on and read the full article, and he basically goes on to state that 1998 was one of the hottest years ever, or was the hottest year according to uh, to the the estimates, um, as a result of the fact that it was a uh, there were certain weather conditions that year that made it sort uh, sort of hotter than usual, and so uh, years afterwards look cooler in comparison, but are still hotter um, when overall when grouped in an aggregate decade on decade. And ultimately, it goes on to talk about uh, all of the, the key talking points that you'll hear about in this regard, including the, I think, particularly ridiculous claim that the amount of extra heat trapped in the atmosphere by these greenhouse gases is equal to the energy released by some 400,000 Hiroshima atom bombs each day. One wonders how many toaster ovens uh, that would be equivalent to or what have you. Um, again, some of those types of uh, scaremonger scaremongering 
quotes have made the rounds, shall we say, and have become part of the lore of the way that this topic is argued about. And there are a lot of different things to say about this. The first of all is that the temperature record itself is not constant, and people should be interested in the fact that the years in the past, for example, the 1930s, which were previously the hottest decade, continues to get colder now, in recent years, the temperature records from the 1930s have been revised consistently downward, and temperature records from the 1990s and later have been revised consistently upwards by statistical manipulations that are made. Someone who's been doing an excellent job of keeping track of that are is, I believe it's Steve Godwin at realscience.com. Uh, uh, again, I may be wrong about, <laughs> about both of those points, um, but I will throw in the link uh, so that you can see some of those manipulations and literally how the temperature record is changing to make the past cooler and the present warmer. And it is always in that way. It is never that the, the recent years get cooler because of the statistical manipulation that goes on in the past warmer. It's always the other way around so that uh, it tends to contribute to the hockey stick effect. So that's one thing to say, that the fact that the global temperature record is not something that is set in stone or f precisely determined, as in they're just reading a thermometer somewhere and writing the numbers down dutifully. This is uh, something that is constructed through various records that are then statistically manipulated, and that is something to keep into uh, account with all of this. Another thing to say in regards to this idea of the pause specifically, um, it is real, it is happening. Again, I'll, I'll throw in the uh, the various uh, satellite data, for example, that show the 18-year-now pause of global warming. But I'll also throw in a link to, a, I think, an excellent uh, post that is being updated, as far as I know, that was uh, for, uh, first posted, well, it first posted further back last year, but uh, has been updated as, as recently as September of this year, the list of excuses for the pause in global warming, which is now up to 52. There have now been 52 separate explanations provided for the pause in global warming, many of which have since either been discarded by the proponents themselves or debunked by various scientific papers. And this list is being kept up to date um, by What's Up With That blog in conjunction with the Hockey Shtick blog, and they have links to all of the original sources for this information and the debunkings that have been um, put out there of these various explanations. So just a taste of some of these 52 explanations for why global warming has not been occurring for the past 18 years. Uh, low solar activities, oceans ate the global warming, Chinese coal use, the Montreal Protocol, what pause? Volcanic aerosols, stratospheric water vapor, faster Pacific trade winds, stadium waves, coincidence, pine aerosols, it's not so unusual, scientists looking at the wrong lousy data, cold nights getting colder in northern hemisphere, we forgot to cherry pick models in tune with natural variability, negative phase of inter interdecadal Pacific oscillation, AMOC ocean oscillation, global brightening is stopped, ahistorical media, dec decadal average used to hide the pause, few El Ninos since 1999, Temperature variations fall out, uh, fall roughly in the middle of the AR4 model results, etc., etc. Again, 52 different explanations have been offered, and many of them either retracted or debunked, which should tell you something about the real desperation of the people who are trying desperately to cling on to models which are 
incorrect. Uh, once again, you can take a look at the various models that were proposed at the time of the original global warming scare in the late 1980s versus the actual results of what has happened over the past two decades. And you will see that 95% of climate models were wrong, which according to the climate modelers means that 95% of reality is wrong. But uh, I think we know which side of the, the debate, uh, that particular debate we should stand on. Uh, and, and so there's, again, there's been a lot of different explanations. And uh, I think, again, it shows the desperation of the people who are trying to cling on to this idea. And all signs point to the fact that this pause will continue for another two decades. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see to what extent the, uh, the, the, the framing of this entire debate will change in that course of that decades. And I'm looking towards extinction and biodiversity as being the next uh, thing that everyone jumps on. I don't think there will ever be a point where they say, you know what, we were wrong and climate change isn't a problem, but I think they will jump on a different bandwagon as this one continues to play out in a way that does not go to go well for the alarmists. Uh, again, a lot more to say about that and many, many other aspects of global warming. I get a lot of questions in about this and it's, again, topics like this that you could devote an entire hour to and really examine the science, but it's difficult to do so in bits and pieces like this, it's difficult to do so without a proper uh, background and statistics and things of that nature. People like uh, uh, Steve McIntyre who, who uh, do this type of statistical analysis and know the different tricks that are being used. So the best way to keep up with this debate really is to, to subscribe to a bunch of different uh, RSS feeds of different websites. And of course, I recommend places like uh, What's Up With That and Steve McIntyre's blog and uh, The Hockey Shtick and places like that. But by all means, keep up with the other side of the debate. Keep up with the, uh, the, the, the Jim Cooks of the world, who I think are cooking the books in a lot of ways. But uh, again, uh, it's up to you. And uh, we will continue to return to this topic and hopefully in more depth the next time we do so, because I know there's a lot of questions out there on these various uh, topics. All right, let's move along to the next question. Richie writes, Hey, Corbett, where do you stand on the drug war and drug prohibition? Uh, well, simple question, simple answer. I'm against it. And there are a lot of reasons for that answer. Um, obviously, the drug war is used as an excuse for the militarization of the police and as a target for mostly for lower income and uh, racial minorities are the targets of this. And that's exactly, for example, what Ron Paul was arguing back in 2008 and 2012. The drug war is used to target black people. So why, uh, why are, why are um, black populations not up in arms about it, metaphorically speaking? And, uh, and of course, for that, he's portrayed as some sort of racist. So <laughs> again, you can never win with a debate like that. But uh, beyond that, of course, the entire drug trade is controlled by the intelligence agencies agencies. Before that, it was controlled by the secret societies, uh, Skull and Bones. Um, the, the, the founders of Skull and Bones made their fortunes in the opium trade with China. All of that, the Russell Trust and all of that is documented history. And I will throw in links to some of the many Corbett reports we've done on this topic, talking about the secret societies' connections to the drug trade, talking about how that morphed into the intelligence agency's control of the drug trade. Of course, we can again throw in the, to the mix uh, Sibel Edmonds' Gladio B series, where we talked about Gladio-protected drug and money laundering that is done from... Afghanistan and places like that to uh, through intermediaries to Belgium and then to the United States. That's one of the main uh, ship shipping routes. And the entire conflict in Afghanistan can be seen as a way of trying to wrest the, the poppy fields out of the control of the Russian sphere of influence. So again, there's a lot to say in that regard. 
And, uh, and ultimately, yes, it's, it's one big phony thing that's been set up as a way of building up the police state and of controlling uh, the, the, the incredible amount of money, the, the billions upon billions upon billions upon billions that are at stake in this global drug game each and every single year. Hundreds of billions when you add it all up. So, uh, again, extremely important. And, of course, the, all of that drug money laundering couldn't take place without the active support of Wall Street. So let's mention the hundreds of uh, billions of dollars that the Wall Street banks have been implicated in when it comes to money laundering for drug money, specifically, that they've been accused and found guilty of in courts of law. And, of course, let's also re uh, remember back in 1999 when the head of the New York Stock Exchange traveled down to Columbia to meet with the head of the FARC to convince them to invest their drug money in the New York Stock Exchange. Just a little interesting tidbit of history that sometimes gets swept under the rug. So, again, lots of different ways why the drug war and drug prohibition is phony as a $3 bill and must be opposed. Let's move on to the... And, again, that has nothing to do with personal preferences about taking drugs or anything of that sort. It's about the ways that that um, drug prohibition is used politically and economically. Okay, move on to the next question. Maurice writes, How do you do it? How do you find the time to read and filter so much information from all over the world even your sources, I imagine, and not suffered sleep deprivation or something. I tried doing this for one small subject, and it's exhausting. Uh, thank you for the sentiment, Maurice, and I do appreciate it. The secret is that there is no secret, that I do suffer from sleep deprivation, and I have paid an enormous physical price for the several years that I put into the corporate report, and I'm not looking for sympathy for that. Obviously, I do this uh, for myself, and no one's forcing me to do it, so I have no one to blame but myself, but it does require an incredible amount of work, and probably too much for any one person to realistically feasibly maintain. What I'm doing, the amount of work that I've been putting into the corporate report over the last several years, is not sustainable. I have paid a huge physical price for it, and it is going to catch up with me at a certain point, and I am looking to try to ease off on the gas pedal a little bit before it does, and I was reminded of this last weekend, uh, the weekend before this past weekend, where I was hit by whatever bug um, came along. I think I got it through my son, but uh, for about 48 hours, I was almost unable to get out of bed. Uh, I was just completely stricken, headache, fever, a dizziness, and uh, it took about 48 hours to pass. And it was in that 48 hours where I literally couldn't even check my email, let alone do anything else, that I realized what a kind of juggernaut freight train that I'm riding right now, and how I can't afford to be sick for even a couple of days, because I have administrative things I have to do with the website in terms of signing up new subscribers and things like that on a, on a daily basis. So it is uh, this incredible behemoth that I'm now riding, that I can't afford to step off, but at the very least, I'm going to have to step off of the gas pedal a little bit and probably reduce some of the amount that I'm I'm actually putting out. The only alternative to that would be to, to hire a full-time assistant to help me with the administrative end of things and the posting and the editing and all of that so that I can concentrate on content creation. That is the ideal, but I would have to about double my subscriber base before that would actually be economically possible. I'm keeping a, food, uh, a roof over our head and food on the table, but beyond that, I think I'd need a, a significantly larger financial base in order to hire someone to, to help with all of this. So... Um, basically, it means that, yes, in the future, I would expect less in terms of the content uh, output, but hopefully not less in terms of quality. That is the one thing I will never sacrifice, so I'm never going to put out any half-assed work. Um, I would prefer to pull out, put out whole-assed work, even if it means putting out less of it. But um, 
to answer your question, there is no secret. There's no way to do this without really committing to it. And that's what I've done personally. And I know that's a huge commitment that most people aren't able to make or aren't willing to make. And I can't hold people accountable for that or blame them for that because I've made incredible sacrifices to do the work that I've done and I can't sustain that forever. So I think it's up to different people to take up the torch because uh, many hands make light work. So that's the... um, perhaps unsatisfying answer to that question, but I do appreciate you for raising that. And I think the, uh, the, the, uh, the, it's kind of obvious when almost every interview I do with another radio host or, or podcast host starts with, how do you do this? <laughs> I think that's a sign that I'm probably doing too much. All right, um, finally, then, let's just wrap things up on a lighthearted note. We have Ron, who says, you have to do a movie review of Fight Club. This is a deep movie that I feel has great meaning of what's going on today. Thank you for the suggestion, and on that note, of course, I get dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of emails every week about the film literature in the New World Order series, the podcast that I do on a monthly basis here at the Corbett Report, but of that, 99% of them are, you should read this book, you should watch this movie. So (laughs) very few people want to talk about what I'm actually talking about. Most people want to talk about whatever book or movie they've just read. Well, I, I, I don't blame them for that, but... Uh, There's no way I could possibly even handle all of the suggestions that come in, and I have my own ideas anyway. But it's interesting you should mention Fight Club, and let's just see if I can uh, get this. Oh, this is going to take a while. Sorry. This was not well planned. Okay. I'll show this for the benefit of the viewers uh, watching the video version of this. This is... You Do Not Talk About Fight Club, a, a, a compilation that was compiled by Metafilm, a, a film review website that I'm not even sure is online anymore. Probably is. I haven't checked in years. Uh, forward by Chuck Palahniuk. And in fact, if you, uh, the author of Fight Club, of course, and if you open up uh, to the table of contents, there you will find a essay by a certain James Corbett called Soap and Anarchy. Uh, this was... For published, I believe, 2000... I want to say 2007. Um, perhaps even earlier. Perhaps... Oh, no. Published in 2008. Uh, and they took an essay that I wrote, I believe, in 2006, 2007, somewhere in that time frame. And they published it in here as one of the uh, the essays. So this actually predates the Corbett Report, so it doesn't really talk about anything that the Corbett Report talks about. But an interesting little nugget, I guess, for the... James Corbett collectors in the crowd who want to have everything that I've ever done, um, you can take a look at this this book, You Do Not Talk About Fight Club, where I talk about soap and anarchy. Um, it was an interesting little tangent that I got onto. Um, but yes, I agree. Fight Club is an interesting and, uh, and worthy movie of consideration, and we'll add it to the mix, and who knows when, with, if, or how we'll talk about it, but I'm sure we'll get to it in some context. So, once again, I do appreciate all of the questions, comments, and uh, ideas that come in through the contact form, even if I don't get back to you personally. Thank you for doing it. And I always look forward to these Q&A sessions. There's always lots of great info that we can at least get on the table, and uh, as always, the best Part of this is the show notes, where you can find links to everything we're talking about and start exploring this in more depth in your own time. And I hope that, if uh, if nothing else, that's what this series accomplishes. So we will leave things there for today. Once again, I want to thank you all for your support and for tuning in for this edition of Questions for Corbett. Looking forward to talking to you all again real soon. <laughs>